It's no secret that we're going through a golden age of horror films. Horror movies have for the most part been critical and financial darlings, with some ending up on the top 10s list across respectable publications covering a plethora of different concepts and topics, from cult leaders to religious hysteria. Aliens killing toddlers, demons killing toddlers, toddlers killing parents, and parents killing toddlers. What is horror? Is it fearing things that bump in the night? Is it the mourned howls of the dead that come with the wind? These have haunted the human consciousness as far back as we developed something called consciousness. The last two episodes we tackled predate written history. The unwelcome return of someone or something beyond our senses. There's a theory that I have ascribed to, that everything we have achieved in life or have not achieved in life stems from the threat of death, the terror of death. Religion to sexual desire, the urges of facing death or cheating death seems to be as primal. Does the fear of death drive us? The depiction of death in art has been around since the start of cave paintings, all the way to movie screens. But did that constitute as horror? Horror as a term first appeared in the early 14th century, which means feeling of disgust or sordid and vulgar. And once Gothic Romanticism appeared in the 18th century, the word horror showed up in prose, where the term would get more of its modern meaning. Nathan Drake used the word interchangeably with disgust. But how did this word become associated with fear? And how horror movies for the most part have been shaped by our changes in society, cultures, politics, technology. But to understand the evolution of horror movies and their monsters, we're going to have to go back to the origins of horror genre in films. On tonight's episode, A Conversation Before the World Ends, we'll be looking at horror films, how they highlighted and manifested our great fears. I'm your host Kareem, and welcome to tonight's show. Welcome guys to today's episode. I'm your host Kareem and I'm joined with a special guest host, Faisal. Hey, how's it going guys? Um, so Faisal will be subbing in for AIM because AIM has, um, I guess, some other other obligations. <laughs> Let's just say he has some equilibrium problems from he just arrived back from a flight and there's been something up with his hearing. I don't know what it is. But um, so we decided to call in Faisal, a good friend of ours to sub in for AIM and I think this is the perfect opportunity because Faisal is also a big fan of film and also he's a writer in his own way, right Faisal? Yes, yes. So a lot of what I do, I like to categorize it under the umbrella of storytelling simply because it's the best descriptor. I've worked in a lot of different things as as a writer for film, for theater, for video games and one of my favorite genres is horror. It's something I gravitate to something I try and incorporate into my work, even if it's not necessarily a horror piece. So uh, thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you about this. A quick background. So one of the things we bonded on or from like childhood, because we've known each other for almost, what, six, 17 yeah, years now? Yeah, we're going on 17 years. Yeah, our love for horror uh, novels, especially H.P. Lovecraft. Absolutely. One of my first memories of you guys actually is us watching... One of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre spinoffs. Yeah, yeah, Texas Chainsaw at the beginning. It's terrible. (laughs) It was, but um, horror, I've always had a soft spot for horror movies. Um, Even growing up, I think my first recollections of watching movies with my mom was The Shining when I was like 10 or something. You know, I only saw that when I was like 18 or 19. I watched it real late. Really? Yeah. Have you ever, have you seen it since then? 
No, I only saw it that one time, and I have to say, I think it was on a plane, too. Oh, no. No, you're doing it injustice. You have yeah, to watch it on the big screen with the lights off and just embrace. Um, it's, it's actually a cinematic masterpiece. I stand by it, and it's not because it's a Kubrick movie and I'm trying to sound pretentious. But All right. It's <laughs> <laughs> so, first, a, a quick question before we start. Sure. Pick a start for horror as a genre. What are the first authors that come to mind? Ooh. Now, this is not an especially original thought. I know that Gothic literature predates this, and I guess there's an argument to be made that Gothic literature is probably the the origin of horror. You could probably make the case that there's some earlier parables or whatever that, that could be considered the, the origin. But I think a fair and fairly uncontroversial opinion would be Frankenstein. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein? Yes, and it serves the kind of dual function of being both the the mother of sci-fi and horror. Uh, I kind of agree with that too. To start off with horror, or to speak about the history of horror, as you know, it's a vast ocean, right? So where do you begin? You could begin with Mary Shelley, right? Some people will go further back and say, oh, but if you look at, I don't know, some work from Shakespeare, there was elements of horror in mm. it. And of course, the history of horror is as vast as an ocean and deep as a shaman on shrooms. Um, so it's difficult to tackle or to fully tackle it, or better yet, to pick out a starting point. And that's why I did not want to focus on horror as a genre in itself. And that's why today I picked, or to pick on horror in film, as a genre in film. Because, of course, horror movies tend to borrow from folklore creatures. That's the start, right? Hmm. Let it be monsters, demons, ghosts. But the root of horror movies can be seen as an extension of horror literature. Um, and, of course, like the episode we mentioned in Tambora, the idea of gothic fiction was created from... Mary Shelley, uh, Byron, Polidori with the vampire. And of course, it will be expanded through Bram Stoker, eventually Edgar Allan Poe. The namesake of what Gothic literature was what had to do more with the setting that it surrounded itself with. Of course, most of these stories were set in some dark, gloomy uh, castle based on the Gothic architecture, mm. hence the name. It's from these stories we do get the first inspirations for horror films with the emphasis on the macabre and like death or the idea of wrestling with death. So the first ever quote-unquote horror on film, it was in 1895 on a short film called Spook Tales, which was pretty much, it's it's an image of a skeleton dancing. Mm -hmm. And that was the first image of death on screen. Now, even though it wasn't classified as horror at the time, we kind of see the groundworks for it. Thomas Edison in 1910 would release an adaptation of Frankenstein. It was only during the First World War that we see the first moldings of what we could call horror in film. Of course, what do we know about the First World War? This was the time where the whole world was pretty much suffering or has come to be aware of the knowledge of death. It's a collective understanding that death does not happen individually. It happens on a grand scale. So this is where we begin to see a change in mentality. And of course, we can't talk about horror movies without talking about German expressionism. Um, I don't know if you've watched any silent German films from the 1920s. I, I haven't, though, if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, you may, you may know about this. I think German expressionism was also very influential to the film noir genre in the US, the techniques in particular. Yes, um, so... One So one of those techniques, and not, not to jump the gun too much, was the way they used lighting, mm. and that would influence film noir. And just a, just a, another point there very quickly, I don't want to go too off topic, but film noir, though rooted more in the crime genre, I think has some, some overlap with horror. Both deal with certain existential themes of dread and grappling with, as you said, life and death. And uh, it's just interesting how, how certain techniques 
lend themselves to different formats of storytelling. That's true. And of course, with noir, you also have the sense of like, there's always like, there's that famous scene where like the lady would be walking down the street, she hears footsteps, she turns around, there's no one there. You know, and then like this whole era, era of mm. paranoia, you know what I mean? That comes around. Is there someone out to get me? Am I being stalked to be murdered? Fear. At yeah. the end of the day, it's fear. The idea of German expressionism from the term, it emphasizes expression over a sense of realism. Why was it born in Germany? One of the main factors is that Germany was in the midst of a world war. It was embargoed by pretty much every country in existence. The Germans had to rely on themselves to release some sort of medium or some sort of art. They were not, there were no Hollywood movies coming in and they, had this, they needed something to distract the German people while they were fighting this war. So the German film industry was birthed out of necessity. Uh, when World War I was over, the UFA, which I'm not going to pronounce how it sounds like in German, I looked <laughs> at it and it's a bunch of letters, so I'm not going to attempt whatsoever to pronounce it. Start prioritizing to making movies for profit. So a year after World War I, we would receive what could be called the great grandfather of horror films, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Have you ever heard of that movie? No, no, never have. So the movie was released in 1920, and it, the plot is pretty much about an insane hypnotist who uses a person that he meets at the circus to commit murders on his behalf. The film uses dark and surreal visuals with, with emphasis on shadows. Here's your, here's your noir references. <laughs> so, but also the movie was written by two World War I vets who would come back from the horrors of war and release it through their art as a form of catharsis, right? The movie addresses the brutality and irrational control of tyranny, and that forces an innocent man to commit murder on their behalf. So you can see the parallels of World War I mm. with this, with the hypnotist being, quote-unquote, the Kaiser or the German sure, government. The, the, the power and control. The next film after that would be called Gollum, How He Came Into the World. That's the official title, nice. which is kind of a badass title. Thing I think it. you and I love titles like that. <laughs> like when it's a song title, even where it's just a sentence. Yeah, yeah, and like, and the way like how he came into the world. So it says so much <laughs> right? and says nothing at the same time. <laughs> exactly, you know, it's a very subtle title, but I love it. When I read it, I'm like, yo, I wish more movies today would have these type of titles. So the movie was based on Jewish folklore. Of course, it wasn't as popular as the Cabinet, but the movie did depict the way the Jews were being treated in uh, Europe. And it kind of, in a weird way, predicted the rise of anti-Semitism that the interwar period of Germany would be experiencing mm. from the 1920s to, well, you know. This is, this is one of the movies that explains how the Jews have been mistreated. Uh, in 1922, we would get maybe perhaps the most famous uh, German horror movie, Nosferatu. Ah, uh, yes. Which again played on German sphere of the other. Right, so Nosferatu being a foreigner coming into a German town, exploiting the naive German people. Classic. Fun fact: Did you know that it's called Nosferatu because they couldn't afford the rights to buy the actual Dracula rights? Really? Yeah. So, huh. out of necessity, they changed the name to I think it was Count Orlock in the movie. Okay. Yeah. One of the main, uh, I guess, analysis of Nosferatu that would come later on is that Nosferatu looked stereotypically like a character of a Jewish person. You know, this is, this is really interesting because I've heard of the movie. I have to say I haven't seen it in its entirety. I've seen scattered clips throughout the years. But you've seen how the dude looks like. I have, and it, obviously, it, it never occurred to me that that's what was going on until you mentioned it now. And uh, definitely gives a different kind of perspective to this movie. It's, uh, you see it. Yeah, <laughs> it's disturbing. This is the type of character that we'd see also in like Nazi mm. propaganda where... The now I don't want to watch the movie. <laughs> the movie would be highly successful during the economic downturn right after the awful treaty of Versailles future episode down the line so but these movies were a form of escapism right it's like kind of like meeting the harsh reality versus 
escaping the harsh reality. Escaping by, I guess, blaming the other. Exactly. There's a removing accountability, perhaps. I don't know. It's uh, you've given a very dark perspective to all of this. I hadn't thought of before. So the thing is with Nosferatu is that like what we usually see and what we're going to see with other future films is that there's always going to be the fear of the other, right? Mm. And what the other is, of course, will depend on where you're from and depend on the era. Sure. But I've noticed that this is something that's been a reoccurring theme. It's always the fear of what's on the other side of humanity, what's on the other side of space, what's on the other side of the grave, what's on the other side of the world, if you will. Or even... Um maybe developments within a culture too like that, that you can kind of i don't know how to say this word i always butcher it anthropomorphize <laughs> uh, an idea because I, I i'll i'll hold these thoughts for later when it becomes relevant i know we're going to get to it but there have been changes in society i think that have also fueled horror movie monsters for sure and um so let's get back to germany so of course at the time Berlin became the cultural hub of Europe through its entertainment. But this all kind of went to shit when the Dawes plan came to effect, almost ruining the UFA. And by restricting German films export in, I guess, typical American fashion, big American studios decided to come in, funnel the UFA and sweep and control the type of movies they were making. Two of the producers or the studios would be Paramount. If I'm not mistaken, Universal was the other. What happened as a process of this? German expressionist directors, actors, cinematographers would move to Hollywood. This would give the rise to American horror movies. I guess in you know, part two from Silence to Scream, we're going to move into the talkies. By the late 1920s, cinema was being transformed massively with the introduction of sound. And of course, no other, well, I guess musicals, but besides musical, no other genre benefited more from the introduction of sound than, I guess, horror movies. In 1928, we're going to get a movie called The Terror, which was surprisingly the second all-talking motion picture to be released by Warner Bros., uh, which revolved around a haunted house in an English countryside that has been converted into an inn. But the first earnest movie, or the first movie that actually made a profit or that people would talk about, would come from Universal Pictures and would kind of create a Universal Pictures horror boom. Of course... The movie that we're talking about is the classic gothic horror, Dracula. I am 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 Count Vladislaus Dracula. I am Count Dracula. Starring the gem of the 1930s, Bela Lugosi. You know, I've never seen this version of the movie. But I'm pretty sure you know the whole... Yeah, I'm, no, I'm, I'm aware of it and I've seen posters and snippets of it, but never the whole thing. The first, I think the earliest version of the movie I've seen was the one with uh, Christopher Lee. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, the 19, I think it was 50s. The British yeah, one? I can't recall now, it was ages ago. It used to terrify me as a kid. <laughs> Christopher Lee? Or the movie. Yeah, no, no, Christopher Lee as as Dracula. He's an interesting fellow, Christopher Lee. Oh, that's that is a subject <laughs> I think for an entire episode. You know, just a very quick aside here. He is the one of the real life inspirations for James Bond. So does this come back to his World War Two days? Yes. Because I know a fun fact about when he was filming Lord of the Rings, and I'm pretty sure you know it. Oh, yeah, the knife thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Let's let, let's save this one. This is definitely something worth looking into. So, of course, the new Dracula movie was the perfect timing in 1928 because the audience, at the, the U.S. audience at the time was still feeling the aftermath of World War One. It was still in the public consciousness, right? So to have a count who was an 
evil Eastern European with a very thick, almost Germanic accent who threatened the good and innocence of the people of the West, resonated with a lot of people in the United States and with, of course, Western Europe. Other things would, would add to it, especially the soundtrack, the organs. The movie became a box office hit. You could see the idea of the other, right? Yeah. And this was kind of a bit on the nose because like, you literally just gave a dude with a foreign accent who was, I think, if I'm not mistaken, Bela Lugosi is Hungarian. Okay. You could see the... Yeah, I think he was Hungarian or maybe a part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So, of course, the movie being a big hit, Universal looked into an idea of adapting other Gothic materials at the time, which led to the second movie to be made. Of course, the I don't know if it's the more famous of the two, but Frankenstein. I usually try to see what's more famous, Frankenstein or Dracula, and what lives in the public consciousness more. Do you mean more famous in terms of these specific films or the characters and the, the iconic monsters? Like the iconic monsters. Mm. Who do you think has lived more in... In the public consciousness? Boris Karloff's Frankenstein is the quintessential look, right? The Sure. The big yeah. monster, the eye, eye, arms out, the bolts on the, the bolts. Yeah. <laughs> as campy as that we think of it now, it, the movie did terrify people back mm. in the day. What was different with Frankenstein? It was it came out during the nineteen nineteen twenty nine. You're looking at nineteen thirty. So this was in the midst of the economic depression. It would give them a kind of a relief that there's a monster that could be overcome. Um, of course, this would be the last movie to be released before the Hays Code comes into place. Okay. I'm pretty sure you know a lot about, like, or you've heard about the Hays Code. Well, yeah, that ties in nicely into to noir as well. Perhaps another uh, episode subject we can explore later. So, as you know, the Hays Code was an attempt, for those who are not in the know, was in Hollywood's attempt to try to censor any immoral content. Yeah. Of course, most of its cues on what was immoral came from the Catholic Church. I mean... So much for Drew's running the media. I guess it's the Catholic Church that was running the media. Is that a timely Kanye <laughs> reference? Jeez. I'm just throwing it out there. And then there was a little war that happened in 1939. Some small little skirmish, if you've heard of it. So in a weird way, the Hays Code tried to relax itself so much by 1939 just to pump out more movies for, like, for people to have something to escape. So horror, horror movies tried to have some kind of revival during the Second World War. And mm. this kind of led the birth of B-rate knockoffs of old movies. They tried to act on nostalgia. Dracula sold in 1928. We'll try to come back with the son of Dracula. Frankenstein was a box office hit. He's the bride of Frankenstein. It's actually very, has a lot of parallels with uh, the kind of remake culture we're living now. Yeah, and this would like ultimately accumulate to, I guess, the world's first ever crossover films, uh, Marvel's House of Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> Thanos is just the latest iteration of, of Frankenstein. Yeah, um, in this movie, you'd see Frankenstein fight off the werewolf and Dracula. In 1940s, also, we would see the rise of werewolf. And this is interesting. And I've read a few articles which i'll post in the note of this episode the werewolf was or the wolf man if you will kind of got a boom in 1941 apparently it's inseparable from the image of hitler since adolf what? is german for wolf interesting the idea of a human who turns into a wolf who is this animalistic violent mm. indiscriminately killing people came to symbolize nazi germany in the eyes of many american viewers who were watching and these movies would prop up in 1940 1941 1942 so while the atrocities of what the nazis were doing was being in front and center newspapers. People go and see a wolfman attacking some innocent virgin girl. You could see the parallels of what Nazi Germany were doing versus what the wolfman was doing. Of course, around this time, we'll also see the rise of the mad scientist sagas, 
where a mad scientist would be experimenting with weird shit and it would create some kind of monster. It would turn him into a monster and so on and so forth. Again, this kind of made it past censor boards because of two things. So the Hays Code allowed yourself for movies under the two conditions that it actually served a purpose for them. The first, of course, was that it was an anti-science parable, if you think about it. So a mad scientist fucking around and then it ends up being... It's uh, interesting that this was happening now, given the rush to develop nuclear weapons and advanced advanced weaponry in general to to win wars and i mean that's all based on science so exactly but what would be perfect propaganda for the catholic church then um, mm. that of course number two would be the fact that most of these scientists <laughs> like bella lugosi would have a very thick accent and would usually be from the eastern side of europe let's just say that so, of course, this would allude to the fact that these scientists were some mad German scientists experimenting and creating horrors. So, after the war, these monsters and mad scientist tropes became more of a cliche, and movie monsters of old would become comedy fodder. Of course, this would be personified or best exemplified through Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein, uh, which solidified that these American horror icons were nothing but jokes to be laughed at. This points us to the 1950s, right? And then in 1950s, we began to see a new breed of horror movies, uh, beginning with, of course, the explosion of the atom bomb in 1945, and of course, space exploration of the 1950s would kind of implement more of a sci-fi element into horror movies, to of your favorite genres i assume yeah it's just a an interesting thing how horror and sci-fi have always complemented each other well i don't want to don't want to get off topic here but uh it's something that recurs and i, I think we'll touch on that a little bit yeah so of course one of the first sci-fi cross or horror crossovers would be creature of the black lagoon where the monster was created by pollution so you could see the societal fears from that godzilla to an extent to you know that they're not quite horror in the traditional sense yeah. It's still a monster so, rampaging. So another form of horror movies would be giant insects be blown up of size due to some kind of radiation fallout. So we had a movie about arachnids. Another, of course, like you mentioned, and maybe perhaps the best example to talk about consequences of nuclear war is Gujira, the King of Monsters, or Godzilla, Q and the 1988, 1998 Godzilla name reference. What did you see, old man? So this, of course, brought the rise of other kind of monsters, but these monsters did not only come from the ocean. With more emphasis on space exploration, this is where we began to see more monsters coming in from the sky. Especially at this, that there was a high anxiety of UFO sightings during that period, um, especially after Roswell and so forth. Um, maybe you're more astute in telling us what... Yeah, that, that is around when the whole flying saucer phenomenon permeated, permeated the public consciousness. With that, you had such movies such as the cryptically titled It Came From Outer Space, uh, which kind of highlighted the anxieties of the space race with the Soviet Union and that how much like the more we meddle into space, the more it, it opens us to be invaded from space. Of course, the idea of being invaded from space by aliens only also adds to the fear of being invaded by a foreign entity, the mm -hmm. other. And of course, this was kind of exemplified with the movie The Day Earth Stood Still and the invasion of the body snatchers which of course had a connotation of being about communism. Sure, yeah, all of us being enslaved into a singular kind of entity. Exactly, and that the fact of like, oh, communism could be attacking us from the skies. You know, I mean that the space race kind of brought this idea of this, there's a new frontier to fight. Yeah, domination from above. Also, what we saw in the 1950s was also the decline of people going to theaters as TVs were becoming invaded, or sorry, where TVs were invading 
the nation at the time, right? And for a while, the cinema kind of had to compete with television for viewerships. Um, this led to cheap... Again, another parallel with today. Exactly. And this kind of led to cheap tricks to lure moviegoers to come in. So they would resort by making gimmicks and marketing shit like uh, watch out for the swooping skeleton that will follow during the movie theater, come to the movie and start screaming at the screen, and also 3D movies would first make an appearance in the 1950s. Uh, and of course, to watch movies in stereophonic sound just to enhance the experience. But of course, these tricks were only tricks and it made people come just to joke about. And this kind of brought brings us to the 1960s. And what better movie to kick off the 1960s than one of Hitchcock's least most popular movies, Psycho. <laughs> <laughs> A film, of course, based... I don't, I've never heard of Psycho. Neither have I. But apparently it's a film based on a novel called Psycho. Oh. Which is based on the psycho, Ed Gein, who's a captivated people at the time when news came out that he would dress in women's skin to feel closer to his mother. Also, this was the first time that we would meet a monster that, for the most part, looked like us and talked like us. So this kind of brought a new level of horror to mainstream America. But of course, what was unique to the 60s uh, was that for every high art horror film, there was also a tasteless gore fest that was happening next to it. But then again, these would play tropes on what would be popular during that time, serial killers. Of course, the idea of killers mutilating women, high, lurking within us, looking like us, kind of brought in this new era of fear where the monster isn't a comic, comedy-looking or over-the-top-looking. No, he looks like us. He just has a bit of a quirk or two or a monster lurking inside. So this kind of played in um, in, the 19, in the early 60s, right? Tail end of the 60s would meet, or I guess America would be in the ultimate crossroad. Of course, the Hays Code was dropped in 1968. On top of that, the counterculture was on the rise. Backlash against Vietnam was front and center in every newsstand. Feminism was on the rise. The civil rights movement was steamrolling. This kind of brought us two of the greatest from horror to bless us in the 1960s. Rosemary's Baby, Night of the Living Dead. So Rosemary's Baby was Polanski's attempt to make a classy horror movie. Why are we even talking <laughs> about Polanski, guys? Look, I know it's controversial. We can't talk about horror without talking about Rosemary's Baby, to be honest. Have you seen Rosemary's Baby? I have not, and if I have, I wouldn't admit to it. Why is Watson barking? <laughs> Sorry, that was our producer, Watson. Uh, he didn't like Vessel's take. I don't know if I should burn the movie for you. Or do you, do you know the ending of the movie? No, it's, it's fine. I'm never going to watch it. Okay, so for those who, are, who don't want the movie to be spoiled, Watson! So for those who don't want the movie to be spoiled, uh, please skip 30 seconds ahead. So she's, the girl ends up being impregnated by Satan. The movie was in essence a tale about horrors of domestic life, the erasure of identity, and the abjection of pregnancy on women. You could see that this kind of coincides with the rise of feminism in the late 60s, where there's this um, idea. <laughs> so just give him your socks. They're staying on my feet. Okay, fine. It's the idea of, like, for example, the star, I think, played by Faye Dunaway. Was it Faye Dunaway who's the star, eh? He's too cool for us now. That's it. I'm <laughs> oh, taking sorry. over as uh, co-host. Mia Farrow was the star. Yeah, yeah, Mia Farrow. So Mia Farrow, every time she tries to rebel or to question what's happening to her, she gets often gaslit. She's crazy and she's just hallucinating shit. And the movie entails that she's pushed to conform with others' expectations, her husband, her neighbors, her community. Therefore, the film asserts that no matter how hard a woman attempts to escape the constructs that surround her, they continuously manipulate her, lie to her, and drag her back into it. You can just see. Just to have an interesting aside here I want to, I want to throw in. So that if I'm understanding. The premise of the movie is that she's impregnated by Satan and no one believes Spoiler her. Spoiler alert, guys. Um. All right. <laughs> okay, no, but, but what's interesting about this is and you, you mentioned uh, the UFO scare, which was taking place at this time, and which we can save for another episode, but a, a common 
a common thread there too is often uh, people claiming to have been abducted and impregnated by aliens or having their pregnancies interfered with by aliens. And this whole fear around, I guess, parentage, right? And you, you othering it. Look, I, do, I don't know. I don't want to speak out of place. But I do wonder sometimes if this is as much a reflection of male fear as it is a female fear. Because men are historically the ones most preoccupied with lineage and questions of parentage and that fixation on whether or not the child is theirs because of historical, you know, uh, financial and, and property reasons, right? Like, I wonder if this is also something at play here. So what's interesting is that interesting is that with that movie, like now that you say it and now that I'm thinking or replaying it back in my head and un- like a weird take on masculinity, especially the way her husband reacts to what's happening. So again, spoilers alert, uh, if you guys want to skip a minute ahead. So the whole apartment are occultists or they worship the devil. So when they impregnate her with Satan's spawn, her husband kind of just goes with it. And it's, he becomes questioned by it, like, why are you letting them do control you like this? So there's a very interesting take on masculinity in this and how he's just like a pawn within it, you know what I mean? Within the social construct of society that the male figure is just goes along with. His, he, he is conformity at its finest. One second. Sorry about that. The sock thing, it's an addiction. It is. Another movie we mentioned is The Night of the Living Dead. Have you seen The Night of the Living Dead? I have, yes. The, 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 the OG zombie movie. Yeah. So it's by, I think it's George, George Romero. George Romero, yeah. It's about zombies attacking America, right? That's it. That's the whole movie. Moving on. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. You work in a bank, maybe a small business, and you're held up by an armed robber. Cooperate. But remember, you are armed too. Your eyes. Use them to record his physical appearance, especially marks and scars, his clothing, the type of weapon used, the direction of escape, the getaway car, and its license number. Remember, they can rob you, but they can't rob you blind. (laughs) (laughs) So the movie is uh, famously, it's famous for being shot almost in a documentary style. Uh, of course, this was done for the shoestring budget that it had, right? But also it revolutionized the way horror was being filmed because there was more of a POV. It would kind of revolutionize the definition or the word of zombie. It also introduced us to the ideas of reanimated corpses coming back to feed on flesh. The idea of cannibalism, right? The movie itself is an allegory on American racial tensions, the Cold War, uh, Cold War politics, and of course, the Vietnamese War. Many people highlighting that the, also the black and white footage of the movie kind of created a newsreel. It's a different type of immersion. Exactly. And also, you have the idea of zombies being on an almost seek and destroy mission, which of course exemplified the Vietnamese War. Are you going to say something? Yes. <laughs> I just want get to the, get the exact date. Of what, the movie? No, no, no. It's just a, a fun fact about zombies. The, the Haitian? Shout out to the Haitian Revolution episode. No, no, I just, uh, so on the subject of zombies, you have, I don't know if it's the original kind of reanimated corpse story, but Herbert West Reanimator by Lovecraft from the 20s, the short story about the, again, tying into the mad scientist thing you touched on earlier, uh, centers around essentially uh, scientists reanimating corpses. So kind of a Frankenstein. Kind of a Frankenstein, but the way it's, if I, I haven't read it in a long time, but I remember 
thinking this feels very much like the classic zombie story. Mm-hmm. So I, I didn't get a chance really to look this up, but I do wonder if it's sort of the proto-zombie story that George Romero would would be the first to really popularize. That's interesting, and I kind of will have to look this up too at some point to see. But guys, also to all of you out there, and we're going to come to the 80s eventually, but uh, there is, a, I think it's 80s, a great movie adaptation of... Uh, reanimator it's a it's it's a cult classic let's just leave it at that mm, yeah yeah we're gonna have to we're gonna cover that topic i know what exactly what type of horror movie you're talking or what's the subgenre of horror movie you're talking about but till then we'll be talking about another topic like another topic that not of the living dead covered was american consumerism hence that the, the majority of the film takes place in the mall but consumerism is good kidding <laughs> Yo, bro, no, let's not, let's not mean that quote. <laughs> it tackles or it critiques American consumer culture, right? As well as zombies underlining the working class who are forced to consume and consume and consume without end. And there's, a, there's an interesting point there, too, because we were talking earlier about how horror is a reflection of fear or the other. And that these things were typically manifested as caricatures of people or places or things that had a, let's say potential to threaten your life whereas this is a good example of something we're going to see in horror later where the the fear is stemming from something a little more abstract it's not from an other per se as much as it is concept a a concept something that's permeating the culture yeah that's true um this is where i also begin to see that like it's a fear of certain i guess ideologies if you will because for example another thing that was brought up is how the main heroes of the movie are black or african-american right and they kind of conjure up the image of malcolm x and martin luther their king that was another thing they touched upon um george romero would like not he would say that he was like pro civil rights movement but he never really put two and two together maybe it's a subconsciously he said but he never really sought out to have two black actors star in a movie which was against unprecedented kind of in the 1960s and uh, something that horror really has not managed well historically speaking is representation exactly which is a whole subject i don't know if how much we're going to get into that but it's it's not good it's improving now but we'll, yeah not great we'll talk about black exploitation horror uh, foreshadowing but um but the thing is um with that is that yeah there is a there's kind of like an idea where there is no representation especially back up until i think the 70s if you will or maybe like the late 70s most of your typical horror stars was a white cis male who kind of dominated the woman would play she would always have to rely on the male to eventually or she would be the victim exactly and again this reliance that the patriarch would eventually fix everything for her or Mm. Uh, she would feel helpless because the patriarch is not there to help her eventually. Yeah. Kind of like in Psycho. Of course, if you haven't, if you don't know the twist, then I don't know what you're doing in life. But the fact that um, what's her name gets killed in the shower scene because no one was there to help her and she felt helpless and da da da. And then, so you think that okay, she's the star. Maybe this is like re like about to rechange the horror genre. But apparently, it's she's just nothing but a damsel, right? In distress. Cannon fodder for, exactly. for the movie. Again, so this kind of brings us to the tail end of the 60s. So the end of the 60s up until 1984. It's what we could consider the second golden age of horror movies. And this is considered like to be the... When people think of horror, yeah. most often horror movies, they think of this period. Because this was due into part for the Hayes Code fucking off, right? And pretty much being... Good riddance. Yeah. Fun fact, if I'm not mistaken, it was a Marilyn Monroe movie that was the first to do away with the Hayes Code. Really? It may have been 
gentlemen prefer blondes. I'm not 100% sure about this. I just know that it was a Marilyn Monroe movie. These movies would also be spawned under the new Hollywood. This meant that directors were making more creative choices. Uh, and of course, these directors would also be students of the craft, right? So now you'd have students of the craft who grew up watching 40s, 50s, and 60s horrors now taking the helm. The horror genre, especially at that time, would reflect more and more the anxieties of the people, especially in the 1970s where Vietnam was coming to an end. You had the gas shortage mm. crisis of the 70s this was kind of also the introduction of the birth control and also you had the disintegration of religion uh the idea of the nuclear family was beginning to dissolve you know what i mean uh this 1968 1969 i guess you'd also have the hippie culture mm. you know you, you just made me think of something and this is a really good point you raised uh, about birth control so you know how we were just talking about sort of the other or the the driving force behind the fear in the movie shifting from an other or tangible threat to fear around a social movement or an idea or an ideology um i can't help but think now you have in the 70s the introduction of birth control Roe versus Wade, you have from these two pillars sort of the, the sexual revolution that happened. Yes. And you also notice that in a lot of the horror movies in the period we're talking about, you have kind of the the victims often being teenagers engaged in sex, right? That there's a there's a yeah. common thread there. And it's I'm just wondering now, because I don't know what the intent behind kind of what the director's vision was or the writer. I don't know if this was a critique of the sexual revolution or a embracing kind of, or embracing and kind of parodying those who kind of equate the sexual revolution to a death of moral goodness. But I think it's almost impossible to deny a, a link there. There is definitely a link. For sure. For sure. Um, and speaking of, so I have a question for you. Now, the first ever slasher film hmm. Is usually considered to be psycho. Sure, yeah. Literally, it opens with exactly. <laughs> slashing. The second most prominent slasher film is The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm. If you compare how psycho treats violence to how The Texas Chainsaw treats violence, you see that there's like night and day, right? Mm. Um, Lily, Texas Chainsaw took a chainsaw <laughs> to, yeah. the, to the screen. Yeah. Um, well, if I'm not mistaken, the movie takes place during the day for the most exactly. part, Exactly. Right? Like, so I have a question for you. What do you think happened between those years for that boom in violence? Well, we touched on a lot of them. I mean, the Hays Code's a big one. Um, I, I'm not 100% sure. I think... Would look, you say when the horrors of Vietnam became popularized that people started getting more and more... Like desensitized? Uh, I won't say desensitized, but violence has become more of a forefront. Yeah, I, I think I can Texas Chainsaw was. That. That's why movies tended to be more gorier towards the early 70s. It could be. It could be. I don't really have an insightful cultural answer to give you, but I do think that the function of the horror movie, for whatever reason, shifted somewhat during this time in this period we're talking about. So, like, if you think about horror, right, it, and you think about stories in general, they're, they're capsules for a message. And early parables used fear to hammer in a message. Of so this is a technique horror movies were using in one way or another, for good or for bad. Whereas I think now during this shift, people realized that kind of like on a roller coaster, where you in a contained safe environment can trigger the fear response, it's kind of a rush. But then you'd need something more to get more exactly. of a rush. So whatever the reason this shift initially happened, I think it caught on. People realized... Oh, we can elicit an intense kind of visceral physical reaction from the audience by showing these things. And if we don't continue to up our game here, 
people are going to lose interest. They tapped into a, a different purpose for the horror movie. Yeah, I get you. I get you. So, of course, like we said, the slasher, the second most prominent slasher movie will be Texas Chainsaw, mm. 1973. But also there'll be another famous movie that would come out in 1973. Uh, shout out to our previous episode, if you haven't listened to it, The Exorcist. Ah, yes. Um, and of course, The Exorcist, like mentioned, I think we spoke 47 minutes talking about it. But to give you a quick rundown, it's pretty much the movie that changed or changed the way we perceive horror because it started bringing more of a supernatural element to it. And it was no more about a monster that you see. It's about an entity that you cannot see invading, again, the idea of invading the nuclear family, invading the family, taking control of innocence. Right? Satanic panic. Exactly. And this would add into the fact that this is the disintegration of religion, a rise of Interest in occultism, which is kind of co- coincided with counterculture in a very weird way, where mysticism was becoming more of a thing. And then it accumulated to the satanic panic, which, again, I think, like I said in the last episode, I want to not talk about it too much because I want to dedicate a whole episode to the satanic panic and the effects it has not only in America, but also the satanic panic in the Middle East in the 1990s, something that rarely is studied upon so the movie the exorcist in its essence is a representation of baby boomers crisis of faith right um that's essentially what it is the priest has a doubts his religion the mom doubts religion the daughter plays with occultism and it accumulates to her being possessed again i'm not going to spoil the movie because i got some feedback that some people did not watch the movie uh, so i'm not gonna spoil it because you have to really watch the exorcist it's one of those quintessential movies to go through yeah absolutely and it holds up really well it does it surprisingly does and it does have one of the best lines <laughs> of any movie this is one thing me and aim always talk about about like old school movie horror movies is that they're so quotable one thing horror movies today lack is the quotability of it that's true even even my favorite horror movies from kind of the last five or six years that overall you know eclipse in greatness some of the, the old ones don't have that quotability yeah i could quote like for instance and not to jump the gun but like hellraiser i love quoting that movie like the box you opened it we came like you just like mm. you know what i mean you could quote you could quote scenes from halloween one halloween two even the i think are- the one exception <laughs> is the witch yeah <laughs> i can quote the shit out of that movie <laughs> yeah, do w- you like the taste of butter <laughs> that has almost an old school uh quotability aspect to it like it's just like it's, it's so absurd you're like where did this come from you know what i mean um but yeah but that's one thing um that these movies had now another thing that would boom in this in the 70s of course would at the tail end of the civil rights movement would be black exploitation films especially black exploitation horror movies and this would start off with the 1972 movie blackula you shall pay black prince i press you with my name you shall be Blackula. Blackula. The history of race in movies. I was today years old when I learned that was a thing. Blackula. Blackula. Yeah, never heard of that. Loki. We need to sit down and watch it one day uh, because it's actually you need to. It's actually a very interesting movie to watch. Like, okay. um, it's part parody part horror, pure horror and the way it's parodying horror like it's parody because there is dracula in the movie was it made by it's by a, a black crew black it's an all black cast all black crew except i think there was like a few white characters but okay. they kind of 
So it was written, directed by... All black crew. By, okay. And that was the idea of black exploitation movie. So like we said, so the history of race in movies is something we'll save maybe for another topic. Yeah, that's it's deeply convoluted. Exactly. And the way, like, especially when you'd have... The idea of having a black actor back in the day was like kind of seen like back when in racist days, it was kind of seen like a novelty thing, but like not in a good way to have a black person in a movie. You know what I mean? Um, of course, that's minus the fact that there was a lot of blackface, a lot of black stereotypes that white people would implement. Um, but back to the movie, the movie was directed by William Crane. And through the film, you could see some parodies of Dracula. The film was noted especially for its portrayal of human sexuality and its underlining Topics of politics, right? Before he becomes a vampire, Blackula was, was an African prince uh, that wanted the Africa and the West to kind of unite in order to stop the slave trade, right? So he goes to Dracula and he tries to attempt or he attempts to convince Dracula to end the slave trade. But Dracula is too happy to keep the slave trade going because he benefits from it. And in the process, he bites the African prince, hence creating Blackula. Like the mo- it sounds ridiculous, right? But the whole, but like, for example, it does sound interesting, though. And I'll give you something else that was very uncommon in 1972. Dracula is brought to America by two gay interior decorators who what? Really? move his coffin to America. So there's also the fact that this was like maybe the world's like the first gay interracial couple presented in a movie. Was this uh, before or after the the AIDS fear? I think a bit before the AIDS Okay. Fear. So this was also very groundbreaking at the time. Also, there's going to be tackles of racial prejudice. There's a famous scene where cops sees black and just first thing he does is shoot at him. Um, yeah, I wish we'd uh, progressed from, from that, that, but, but I, I can sadly confirm we haven't. And uh, the movie would also tackle homophobia, which was running rampant during the film's release, because this is where kind of you had uh, homophobia was on the rise. Like, so there'll be more movies uh, like Blackula, where they would tackle other historical topics such as zombies. I think there was a movie about possession too, which was kind of jokes. But Blackula is the quintessential black exploitation horror movie. Again, if you haven't seen it, I do recommend it. It's actually a very interesting, like even just to analyze it, just to see it's a, such a time capsule of the 70s, you know what I mean? Um, and I love like black exploitation movies. I find it very entertaining to watch. So with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, there was an allegory of Vietnam, right? That's what Toby Hopper wanted to represent. But also it gave a rise to a new breed of horror films, the hillbilly horror. So you have movies such as Last House on the Left, The Hills Have Eyes, and Wrong Turn. And of course, these movies brought the idea of a poverty-stricken countryside America versus the urban visitors, quote-unquote, or tourists passing through. And it's this clash of modernity versus tradition or, or rejection of modernity. Maybe even a little class elements in there's there, a, too. There's a big whole class element because most of these people are usually poverty-stricken. Uh, they're isolated from quote-unquote technology or the real world they're always suffering some sort of depression that they kind of want to take out on the urban people and of course these movies would be met with complete violence i think deliverance is the one with the famous i'll make you squeal like a pig yeah deliverance was actually the first thing that came to mind i don't know if deliverance is technically a horror movie it's horrific but is it a would you would you categorize last house on the left as a horror movie you know that's one i haven't seen okay have you seen wrong turn I haven't seen that either. Mm. Okay, so you know the plot of Last House on the Left is a girl goes skinny dipping. Yeah, no, I know, I know the Last House on the Left's general premise. Plus, yeah. So I guess Deliverance, doesn't it fall in the same category as those? I suppose so. And I would make the argument that it's a scarier movie than, I don't know, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. 
Exactly, like because there's a bit of sense. There's a whole lot of realism in it. This is again something that's been carried in the '60s, where the monsters are not monsters, but they're actually humans who have a dark side. And it's interesting because, like, like the idea of hillbilly horror. At the end of the day, it is very classist. For some reason or another, like, there's always an incestuous undertone somewhere, where like it's the whole family, but the whole family have always remained closed knit and away from society. So then you're like, huh? Then how did all these kids come to be? You know what I mean? Yeah. And I don't know what it's supposed to represent for America. Maybe like, how would you interpret this? I think I think you touched on it. I mean, I don't know again what the writers, where they're coming from, where the directors coming from. I'd be curious to look into that. But uh, I think there is a certain, maybe even prejudice at play. I get, I don't know. There, there is that divide. It's about old and new. It's about insulated and cut off versus progressive and you know, open-minded, the backward savages, you know what I mean? Like, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, that's the thing. I, I, the tricky thing with horror and I suppose any other genre is that you, it can be difficult to distinguish whether the creator is trying to channel a view or whether they are critiquing a view, whether they are advocating for something or kind of tearing it apart through parody essentially so i don't know i don't know what they're trying to say but i think at the heart of it is this uh growing divide between you know coastal rich and uh what's the word mid mid, mid, yeah mid uh, kind of like um inland poor yeah yeah. i think this is something that's also like there's also this prejudice i guess it's worldwide right like the coastal cities versus the in inland or mainland uh sure yeah midwest the, the exposure they yeah. get and yeah i guess texas chainsaw is that the game changer as you will maybe 1973 was the year of horror maybe mm. provide us the template of the quote-unquote clueless teenager <laughs> yeah. which would be exploited in the 80s to no end whatsoever and well into the 90s this would be also pushed to greater length by halloween and uh, the creation of the final girl uh the idea of a virgin or often reserved girl who by the end of the movie survives and that it was through her almost asexual behavior almost turning into a tomboyish Mm. figure at the end of the movie that ends up defeating the monster of course most of the time uh, there's always an assistance of some dude in halloween it's dr loomis in friday the 13th it's always a cop who comes at the end and assists and whatnot um the horror movies of the 80s or the late 70s to the 80s would also try to dismantle or try to reinforce the idea of a nuclear family this would become the main topic to grasp in 1980s and 70s or late 70s using halloween again you can see that for example in these movies the parents are mostly unavailable they're never around you don't know what they're doing they usually send their kids away to a camp they usually go partying and leave the kids at home with babysitters and they're always not there so this kind of dismantles the idea of a collective unit or a family unit that's together another thing also they're not there to protect their children from the sins of the world, such as premarital sex, which is, of course, a very huge theme in these movies, right? More times than not, and maybe for, I could say, like every single death usually has to come either before or after or during a sex scene. And of course, Friday the 13th would be the king of doing that because yeah. I, I think every murder revolves around sex. And the whole premise is that the teenagers were having sex while Jason was being drowned. Hence why this whole shit started to begin. Mm. Shout out to Jason. <laughs> <laughs> the OG slasher for in the, my opinion the OG incel to me he was the, he was the first proper slasher I think that I've seen was Friday the 13th mm. the second one of course where he gets his mask you know weirdly enough and I don't know if this falls under the slasher category I think it kind of does and also 
sort of in that uh, kind of backwoods horror genre. The Hitcher. That's the first horror movie I ever saw. Really? Yeah. Or or at least the very first slasher. slasher. Yeah. The Hitcher. I remember being scared shitless. I was <laughs> nauseated. Genuinely, I couldn't stop watching even though I wanted to. I finished that movie and I felt legitimately sick to my stomach for the rest of the day. And it's funny because by today's standards of gore, it's really not that... No. And and I remember there's a... Even the most, you could say, brutal scene in the movie takes place off camera. See? It's insinuated what happens. Mm-hmm. And yet, it stuck with me more than any other horror movie. So, of course, another trope would be the idea of the babysitter getting killed, right? And the idea that um, babysitters would use... Um, the opportunity of work to have sex with their boyfriends um, also was a major trope. Perhaps uh, also, I don't know, I'm like, I tried to understand this and perhaps uh, it meant that sex was like the death of innocence. So for the death of innocence, the death of the nuclear family, the... So, yeah. So you see like the sex death connection, right? That's permeated through tons of movies. So like, for example, Prom Night, Graduation day, silent night, deadly night, uh, shopping mall. Um, <laughs> so you see all these movies that came out during the 80s. And of course, uh, Friday the 13th and all its uh, 100 million sequels. The serial killer does not die anymore. And he always has to find a way to come back. Films also like Halloween and those slasher movies also try to explore the darker side of suburbia. Uh, they mocked the safety and sanctity of living in a suburban household as compared to urban. See, that's a good point I'd never thought of. And it makes me think that these movies were primarily satirizing the fear of the sexual revolution rather than critiquing it. Given that there's a sort of... um, You're not safe from sex in suburbia? Well, no, no. Just like so, the question is: Are these movies vehicles to critique, you know, premarital sex and changing attitudes towards sex, and they're trying to reinforce notions of the nuclear family, or are they parodying the fear and the reactionary kind of uh, aversion to these changes? But you just pointed out that there is an almost irreverent kind of attitude towards the suburbia, which goes hand in hand with traditional ideas around the nuclear family. So this leads me to think, probably... This was like kind of like a satirizing the idea of it. The, 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 yeah, it's satirizing the reactionary views towards these issues at the time. The quote-unquote baby boomers' reaction to this stuff. Or exactly, not baby boomers, yeah. Well, yeah. well, I guess they were the, the dominant uh, demographic at the yeah. time. Like, they were, they were young. So, God, uh, we're so old now. What would it be, the lost generation? Is that what they call them? No, the lost generation is between the 30s and... No, 20s and Isn't 30s. this... this Like, I mean, teenagers at this time... Yeah. They, would they, be boomers. They, they would be either the the uh, the last batch of boomers or the first batch Gen of, Xers. Yeah. So, also, you have, like, for example, Michael Myers is a suburban child who murdered his sister while she was having sex instead of looking after him. Uh, he spent his developmental years in an asylum... And he'd break out and return to kill in his suburban hometown. He is a product of his environment. That's what Michael Myers is. You know what I mean? And these killers are ultimately the product of their environments. They're always affected by the environment around them to come back and kill. Jason was um, affected by the murder of his campsite, right? He was a product of that campsite. I don't know. Leatherface was, he just had an incestuous family, I think, who cannibalized people. Another movie, of course, that would come out and that would break down the idea of a nuclear family with a touch of classism and a touch of racism is The Shining. The, in my opinion, 
the greatest horror movie i could say i know it's gonna be a bit controversial but i mean it's it's not unreasonable whether people agree or disagree it's a iconic piece of cinema that transcends the genre too it's not just a great horror movie it's considered widely by many to be one of the greatest movies ever see the thing is with the shining is that the more every time i watch it the more i learn something new about the movie that i've missed before if it's some wait one second this is a metaphor for this or wait one second look at the way he shot this it's there's always something to pick up and i think the best type of cinema is the one where every time you watch it you're always surprised by something new you sure know yeah I mean? no i agree shout out to black adam that's in theaters today <laughs> so rich with meaning <laughs> and nuance the shining of course like we said it talks about the breakdown of the nuclear family as shown through isolation if you think about it, the three main characters who inhabit the hotel, they live in a coexistence, but they remain at three random individuals. They barely interact with one another. Even if they do, it's almost met with like some sort of violent tantrum or some sort of violence. But for the most part, they're alone. They Each one is together, but alone. And it kind of breaks down this idea of, yeah, on the outside, they look like a wholesome family. In the inside, they're actually just three random strangers who live together in one house or under one roof. And they represent nothing beyond themselves. You know what I mean? Mm. Uh, the movie also represents a longing for community and the idea of a collective consciousness uh, this is exhibited by Danny the boy and his telepathic communication with the chef of The Shining who is interestingly portrayed by a black man so I don't know if this is like a metaphor to be the conscious or subconscious communication between races and that interlink this was a Stanley Kubrick movie yeah yeah do you have any idea what his uh, personal views are on, um, on different things? I mean, I'm curious about that now. I should know about his backstory, but I know that, for instance, um, I know he's a bit of a capitalist. <laughs> that's, all, <laughs> that's all I know about Kubrick. And that's as far as I go. But like, with that said, I still respect him as a director. Mm. But yeah, but I don't know his views on race. But but the thing is, this movie also brings up the idea of Native America, uh, the Native American genocide. There's a famous scene where the dude is explaining to uh, Jack Nicholson's character about the place and he nonchalantly says, oh, do you know this was built on a Native American burial ground? Of course, he didn't use the term Native American. He used something more derogatory. And he just says it nonchalantly. He's like, you know, and they've tried to fight us a few times while constructing this. We ended up building on it anyway so there's this idea american uh, history or like american history being built on bloodshed like look at this luxurious overlook hotel literally covering up a horrific moment in time <laughs> okay so another idea was that um the movie also portrays with the idea of the 1920s and history american history right so of course the famous scene during the ballroom where jack torrance is having a drink and then he kind of has a weird hallucination of a 1920s party uh frederick jameson would comment that the ballroom was animated by these like merry makers of another era right among whom jack nicholson unshaven in his lumber jacket seems painfully out of place the long-awaited moment of truth takes place and the film uh, publicly gasps with the convention of a ghost stories that are violated so the hero interacts with these ghosts right where of course it's personified by the idea of the waiter spilling a drink on him and they come with me to the bathroom to clean it off of course the night watchman whose grisly murder and suicide earlier winter has already been revealed at this point it's been mentioned in the plot that there was oh there was a murder that happened here the idea of a recent past with psychotic impulse and family violence tend to imagine along the lines of like nicholson's character who's beginning to find the disdain to his own family so also it's revealed that this generation to be the 20s it is by the 20s that the hero is haunted and possessed 
right? So it's not, he's not haunted by a ghost, but he's haunted by a ghost of history, the ghost of an era. So what's so special about the 20s? Of course, it represents the roaring 20s, right? So according to Frederick Jameson, the 20s was the last moment in which genuine American leisure class led an aggressive public existence, in which an American ruling class rejected a class-conscious, an unapologetic image of itself and enjoys its privileges without guilt, openly and armed with its emblem of top hats, champagne glasses, and on the social stage in full view of other classes. So this was the class that Jack Nicholson's character would end up envying, which is a very good critique about America's sense of nostalgia. And this came to the tail end of the 70s, the early 80s, which was considered um, kind of an economic downturn in the United States. And of course, this this era of going back to how things were before World War II, this idea of the classic the good old days exactly so the shining like we said is a ghost story in which history bourgeois society is the ghost the Mm. longing to go back to that bourgeois to the gaspy era you know what i mean so that was the shining and there's this idea of nostalgia right because like we said this is the deterioration of religion this is the uh, this is the idea this is the rise of counterculture so the american innocence is finally dead because of vietnam there's america did not see itself as now the country anymore America has become frazzled with its problems. Another thing, of course, in the 80s, we can't deny the fact that there was, again, a rise of serial killer interest in the 1980s. The idea of killers killing random teenagers during the most violent year of American history, in addition to an influx of people like Ted Bundy making the news, right? And of course, this idea of moralistic warnings of premarital sex goes hand in hand with Reagan's tough on crime stance. I think the idea of a slasher is supposed to represent maybe the state or Reagan's tough on crime attitude and how it's affecting teenagers who are usually pot smokers and uh, free lovers, I guess. So the slasher films, you'd also find the idea that authority figures, for the most part, are depicted negatively. They don't listen to the teenagers when they come crying for help. They usually tell the teenagers to go into one direction and they end up getting killed, or they get end up not listening and getting killed themselves. That's another point in favor of assuming these movies are actually targeting the uh, social fears that are being depicted on screen. It kind of almost seems... As though these movies depict what kind of a characterized version of what, you know, reactionary people believe the future will be if you allow certain changes to unfold. So it's almost, so these movies could be viewed maybe progressively. It is. And I won't be surprised to do so. For example, another thing is that the idea of how a family could be also a hindrance to you more than helping you. Right, like shown in Nightmare on Elm Street, when no one, when the idea of her family and her family's past kind of hindered Nancy. Mm. With, uh, you just made me think of something. So typically in, in horror, in all horror, at the, it's a cautionary tale. There is at its core that aspect. So in a way, these movies are warning you or viewers or whatever that there is nobody coming to save you because authority figures are so dysfunctional and motivated by things that are not in your best interests that their position their power yeah, their tradition yeah yeah there is nothing between you and the horrors so to speak yeah to quote cold chamber you have to save your sorry sorry self that's a deep cut guys <laughs> points if you if you got that you reference got that. so of course but again in the 1980s the idea of the final girl will be kind of reimagined like we said nancy from nightmare on elm street she kind of exhibited sexuality she had a boyfriend movies would alter the idea of the virgin she doesn't have to be a virgin anymore none of this like whole saint mary act going on um another fact of 1980 and to bring back to your hp lovecraft is the rise of body horror what's it fucking inside me there's a monster in your chest and in a few hours it's gonna burst its way through your rib cage and you're gonna die Oh, yeah. You know, I didn't realize that 
the 80s were when that boomed. But you're right, the thing. Mm, yeah, was in the 80s. And so was Videodrome, mm. The Fly. So you have uh, Kornberg. Uh, shout out to David Kornberg. Hold on. Was The Thing the 80s? Yeah, yeah. Um, I have the date right here. Uh, the Thing, was, I think, was 1981, I think. Oh, so the very beginning of the yeah. decade. So the 1980 would be defined by Habadi Har, which has been a mainstay, I guess, from the, like from the 40s. I mean, the Wolfman could be considered body horror, if you will, metamorphosis of the body or whatever. But it was only in the 80s that body horror would take its true form. No pun intended. Um, and despite some underrated gems, the classic defining films would be The Thing, which dealt with uh, the fears of isolation, paranoia of the 1980s, right? Uh, this is where I think where capitalism was its peak in the 1980s. So the fear that everyone was its own individual, the sense of community was almost lost. So I love these movies tackle the ideas of loss of identity and loss of isolation, like, or sorry, not loss of isolation, but the idea of isolation, losing touch with the people around you. A theme that gets visited in a very interesting way in American Psycho. Yeah. Later, later down the line, this is the 80s still, but it was re- written as a reflection on the 80s. Can I tell you something that happened yesterday at work and kind of made me think of American Psycho? So a guy came to visit my office and he gave me his business card and it was actually a very good business card. So once mm. he left, I was like looking at it. I'm looking at the wow. texture. <laughs> and it just hit me that I'm like, shit, like I'm just pulling up like a Patrick Bateman scene. I'm like, looking, I'm like, yo, this is actually a very good texture. And I'm kind of got jazzed because I'm like, I should ask him where he made it. You know what I mean? Mm. But I didn't want to. <laughs> Embedded in that... Is, a, is the very interesting notion that the hyper-individualistic reality of capitalism at its extreme is ironically more similar to how people view communism, right? Because look at Patrick Bateman and his multitude of other vice presidents that he works <laughs> with. All of them are carbon copies of each other to the extent that there's they no constantly I- mistake each other for each other. You know what I mean? Like Patrick is always being misidentified as uh, I can't Albert Strand or yeah, something. Yeah, 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 right. And they all have the same business card, and they they are all the same. They're copy paste. My favorite scene is when the guy goes, "Patrick, Patrick, is that you?" Then he's like, "No, Louis, it's not me." You know that scene where he's like, "Yes, really? <laughs> yes." So another movie that would come out around this time in 1983, we got the David Cronenberg classic, Videodrome. So, of course, the movie Videodrome tackled with themes of S&M, sexual taboos, again, loss of self-control, the fear of technology, and government paranoia. Have you seen Videodrome by any chance? I don't think so. I'm going to say this, and Eamon can't be here to dispute it, but it's his favorite horror movie. I'm going to go on record and say that. And until he says otherwise... I feel, I feel there's a like an inside joke <laughs> happening here. I've um, never heard Heyman mention Videodrome. <laughs> Good or bad, actually. I'm just saying, it. until he comes to clarify this, I'm just saying Videodrome is his favorite horror movie. And especially he loves the second part of the movie. If he says otherwise, he's lying. 1987, we would also get another classic body horror film. One we mentioned a bit before, Hellraiser. Explorers in the further regions of experience, demons to some, angels to others. Which the idea of um, pain and pleasure being kind of one of the same, right? And again, it tackles with the ideas of sexual taboos of the 1980s. Now, um, in Japan also, we'd also get a rise of body horror movies. Uh, I don't know if you know any, but Akira would be one. Oh yeah, Akira is another crossover Classic, and then yeah. it's, a, it's a staple of anime and one of the first 
movies to popularize it in the West. Exactly. And another Japanese movie. And also, sorry, just to, to interrupt real quickly there, it's also a staple of the cyberpunk Is genre. It? Yeah, Akira is considered one of the... So, so cyberpunk typically is viewed as having kind of two parallel routes, one in the, the East and one in the West, with the Western examples uh, being Can derived from... No, <laughs> he, he would, let's say, consolidate it. Uh, but Neuromancer, I'm forgetting the name of the author, Gibson, I think, William Gibson, if I'm not mistaken, I should know this. But Neuromancer would go on to inspire the Matrix and, and the genre as a whole. And you have, of course, Blade Runner. Yeah, of course. Which is which is the quintessential cyberpunk, cyberpunk film, and that's uh, but almost. That, but that also brings elements of Japan or Asian, but East fear, Asian. but fear of of Asian dominance in and irrelevance of the West. It was not influenced uh, from a content perspective, as far as I know, from anything. But what you had happening in parallel is stuff like Akira, mm. uh, which viewed which which kind of grappled with, you know, their own. Uh, social issues at the time. And there's another example that I'm forgetting now, very famous. It'll come to me. Uh, the other movie I have is Tetsu, the Iron Man. Yes, that's that's also one of them. That wasn't the one I was thinking of. Not to be it. mistaken by Marvel's the Iron Man. Marvel's uh, the Iron Man. Uh, Appleseed, maybe? No, not Appleseed. It, it'll come to me. But you had these two kind of... Oh, it, Ghost in the Shell. Ghost in the Shell. That's the one that would go on to hugely influence... The Matrix. The Matrix. So these movies... Uh, from was pretty much an effective means of engaging with and representing the grotesque elements of contemporary lives in the 1980s. You just made me think of something, uh, an interesting connection between horror, body horror specifically, and cyberpunk. Go ahead. Um, And and I guess it makes sense why Akira would belong to both categories. Both deal with the fear of losing one's physical self. If you look at Ghost in the Shell, uh, I don't know if you've seen it. Have you? Uh, No. Definitely worth a watch. Uh, it's been a while since I the I've movie seen it. or the anime. Yeah, definitely <laughs> the anime. But uh, one of the core concepts there is the idea of what constitutes soul in the context of AI and the, and whether we are we or are we connected to our physical shell. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of overlap there with body horror because both are exploring the same the idea anxiety. Of what's the body, right? What is us? What are yeah. we? So another thing these movies would cover, and again, like with thing, because again, this was the 1980s, so this was during the AIDS crisis. So the idea of something within you that you cannot see or feel, or the paranoia of the person next to you might be affected with mm. something, is something there. Uh, of course, another critique would be capitalism, and again, the loss of identity in the capitalist society, in the hyper-capitalist society. Of course, the 1980s, you can't think of anything but Thatcher and Uncle Reagan. Shout out to there's sh- shout out to the Stroke. Their legacy <laughs> stands tall and proud today. Okay, so now that we come to the tail end of the 80s and early 90s, I can't really say much about 90s horror because um in the early part they're at least mostly shit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, except why for, are they shit? Kidding because well, that's a question. That because begs, I, uh, I think because of the Clinton era and th- more of an economic stability, I think horror needs a fear of crisis. I would dispute. I, okay, I don't know where you were going to go next, Kareem, because maybe you were going to touch on this. But Scream is that's a what pivotal think, moment. That's why I said the early part ah, of the nineties because okay, Scream you, yeah. was nineteen ninety six. Okay, so nineteen ninety six, and this is where the pretentious filmmakers come in: postmodernism. 
or this idea of postmodern cultural the self-awareness within <laughs> exactly and it's the idea of taking all these tropes from the 80s and spinning it back onto itself you know what i mean so it's you're mocking the whole trope so the whole trope is now a joke kind of what i guess abbott and costello did with frankenstein just taking these cliches and sure. just throwing it back at you these movies kind of dealt with the idea of um here's the tropes and this is our way of reclaiming it by deconstructing it you know what i mean so there's a bit of the deconstruction happening this was exemplified with scream which i think is the movie of the 90s i don't and i guess i know what he did last summer kind of t- satirized it a bit you know what i mean to I mean, a lesser extent Having just seen it relatively recently with the both of you guys, I'd say it's more played straight than it is a self-aware maybe, maybe we art piece. Maybe we watched it wrong. I think we definitely watched it wrong. <laughs> Anyways, uh, and so this gives us to the 2000s. And we can't talk about the 2000s without talking about like a event in the 2000s that kind of changed the whole world. George Bush's golf shot. Well, he declared war on an abstract concept called uh, terror. terror. So the 2000s, of course, we cannot talk about it. Which without... is why we're still in this war today, by the way, because it's by definition a war that cannot end. It will not end. So we'll be talking about 9-11 and its aftermath. And of course, the aftermath of 9-11 is the global war on terror. Uh, this gave rise to a new breed of horror movies. And two most distinct form of horror movies was the reemergence of zombie movies and the introduction of torture porn. I want to throw in a third one there. And I'm not sure if it there's a relevance or if it's something that happened in isolation of those uh, events. M9? Well, the less said. <laughs> uh, no, the, the influx of that kind of new wave of Japanese horror where you had like The Ring and its remakes. See, and- now... I kind of have the theory that because of over-saturation of torture porn and... Uh, There's a response? The response was to find horror elsewhere. Sure. And I think... And they were often more cerebral and yeah, thoughtful. Yeah. And like, again, shout out to our ghost episode where we talked about how the influence of J-horror on American contemporary mm. horror, um, especially when you talked about Japanese ghost stories. But then again, it could be more of a um, globalization. I don't know. Oh, yeah. That definitely accounts for some of that for sure um so for example the new breed of zombie movies just to go back to it um within 2001 to 2011 there were 300 produced zombie movies 300 seriously not counting the movie 300 but (laughs) (laughs) that movie is americana at its finest you know what i mean uh, there's a reason why a lot of right-wing people like 300 or they relate to quote-unquote Spartans for some reason. The The idea of zombies was kind of like this idea of a new breed of zombie flex, right? So instead of being the dead rising from the grave and aimlessly walking around, this these zombies were kind of created through a biological fallout uh, some biological experiment gone wrong some nuclear experiment uh, gone wayward and usually it was set in a post-apocalyptic dystopian future shout out to maybe i think one of the best zombie movies 28 days later absolutely that that redefined the genre that re- i think that was the first time where zombies were running and that they were actually somewhat of a thoughtful beings where they could think before. Though, though i still have a major gripe with that movie which is how do they know to only attack the non-infected there you go <laughs> <laughs> the set, aim is pointing at his nose. Sense of smell is what he's saying. Sense of smell. He's just kind of lurking in the background, guys. I know you can't see, but he's just watching us, curled over, eating his dinner. How about if we talk about how you used to bang? Hmm? Now he's talking about Danny DeVito. I, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, you're the producer? Yeah. <laughs> 
Always Sunny in Philadelphia reference. Another great show that you guys should check out if you haven't. Kind of built on the ideas of a biochemical attack, right? That at any time. Was the anthrax scare in the 2000s? I believe it was the early 2000s. 2000s. Again, yes. another fact that would add to the anxieties of the people at the time. And of course, this is where we get to the trigger warning because this is where we're going to get to a kind of a racist portion. But I mean, it won't be Hollywood if it didn't have a tinge of racism. But the idea of zombies being this mindless horde who are fixed on an agenda would represent uh, Islamic extremism or the what would become the Muslim horde that's invading America. Or you the know, foreign- it's interesting. I, I never made that connection before. But you see it now, right? I mean, I could. I, again, it comes down to director and writer intent. I'm curious now. The idea was that, like, and how the always the hero is this average Joe American who's reluctantly mm. fighting off these zombies just to protect his family. You know what I mean? So it's the idea that any normal day Americana would be... Would would stand yeah. tall and proud against those mindless and yeah, and it will always end up with some sort of sacrifice, like this idea of being the martyr, right? Mm. Uh, like those lives lost fighting the war on terror. I um, see it. Yeah, so that was the idea, and of course, these zombies were sophisticated, more sophisticated, but they were always blinded by their bloodlust to kill, exemplifying the ideas of terrorism. So now, another thing that was born in the two thousands was the idea of torture porn. Or oh, I remember the first horror. time I saw Hostel. So you have movies like Hostel, Saw. Saw, yeah. We kind of saw their comeback of other torture porn flicks, such as Green Inferno. And whatnot, where they just relied on the torture aspect of every movie. A famous French movie called Martyrs relied a lot on torture of course they tried to sell it into a more artistic flavor that oh it's all trying to find the afterlife but it is what it is and this kind of coincides with america again america's war on terror and when images of abu Ghraib started to appear on the media and the images of or at least the rumors at the time of what was happening in guantanamo started to emerge and the idea of tor- torture being the way to extract the truth so these movies would kind of play on the idea of being tortured there's also another element there in Hostel. Hostel's a good example of this, where it's tapping into not just the fear of, I suppose, terror and the aftermath of 9-11, but, but also tourist. Eastern European uh, yeah. culture and kind of very unflattering stereotypes of the, of the kind of ex-Soviet bloc countries. Exactly, and it plays on this idea too of that, like these... Um, these ideas of that uh, American tourists being kidnapped abroad... Again, the naive girl being kidnapped or lured by some European suave dude who ends up being working for some torture porn ring, the idea of snuff. Again, this brings the idea of technology too into the process because like the fear of technology, the fear of what technology could bring, hence why. And this kind of brings us to found footage horror movies where the idea of being... Oh my God, we didn't talk about the Blair Witch Project. Exactly, that's why I kind of that wanted was, to say was that 90s? 99. 99. Was it 99 or 98? Something like that. Um... But the idea of again technology, right? Now that you, you now that you have the idea of multimedia, or you could film whenever you like, the idea has become um, the idea has become that you could be the controller of your own narrative. But then again, this kind of gave a rise to found footage horror movies, of course, which has been done to death. I can't watch any found footage movie anymore, to be honest. I, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, guys. I'm totally bored by it. it it's just done to death. Same with zombie movies. For being honest, like, I don't think I can watch another one. It would take it would take a lot if they they would have to distinguish themselves in some big way the way Twenty Eight Days Later did for it to be interesting at this point. Um, so this kind of brings us to the twenty tens. Now the twenty tens we kind of get into a new phase of horror, a very juicy decade of horror movies where we kind of um, well we get some sort of existential horror, if you will, or what I think that's a good way of of framing it. Elevated yeah. horror. 
conscious <laughs> horror, kind of like conscious hip hop, right? Like yeah. it's uh, it's no longer looking at fear, but it's looking at existentialism. Yeah, questions of why and purpose. And of course, this coincides with the 2008 economic downturn, mm. the uncertainty of a future, the idea of a bleak future as seen in movies such as It Comes at Night, The Quiet Place. Questions around why we're doing things the way they are and is this the way we should be doing them and is there a future? Exactly. And Climate change. Another thing and the fact that more women are helming horror, you're beginning to see more a feminine take on horror. Sure, different perspective. Uh, and the way that, for example, women deal with anxieties of their own, again, with like movies such as Men, which deal with uh, patriarchy or like the fact that men gaslighting women to thinking they're crazy. Uh, you also have movies such as Bitsomar. It's not really from a feminine perspective, but like it also deals with the idea of like a woman dealing with being with grief, yeah, grief isolation, being again ignored in a relationship to find a certain sense of community. I mean, no spoilers, but yeah. Um, and then of course you have movies such as Babadook, which was uh, directed by a woman about, it's about a mother dealing with the death of her husband. And again, it's this idea of dealing with grief. It's the idea of coming to terms with your grief. Mm. Uh, grief is an interesting one. I, uh, one of my favorite horror movies of the last 10 years is Annihilation. Another example of horror sci-fi crossover. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, there's a huge undercurrent of grief and loss that runs through that movie. All the different characters are wrangling with it in one form or, or another. And also that existential dread of them being in a place where all control is lost, all meaning is lost, or is at least unraveling, and questions about what is going to happen next. Are we doing the right thing? Are we moving forward in the right way? And uh, interestingly, not helmed by a woman, but it features predominantly an all-female cast. Yeah, uh, such an underrated film. And then, of course, another film or another big film that we can't, I guess, gloss over is Hereditary. Hereditary, again, deals with... Uh, grief and loss. Grief, loss. It, again, brings back the ideas from the 80s of a family unit. The idea of... A, but this time, it breaks down the nuclear family in the sense where there's a lack of communication, a lack of uh, the, quote-unquote, the secrets that families keep from one another, like the mother, the secrets that she kept from her past. Uh, the son trying to keep the secret uh, when his... Um, you know um spoiler free yeah spoiler free um it's a great movie and again it deals with grief and a lot of these movies deal with grief because what what else can you deal with we're at a time where we are so uncertain we're dealing with a lot of stress a lot of problems um life is becoming unaffordable endless war there's always grief around the corner and of course another thing we can't gloss over is the rise of race conscious horror absolutely i was gonna say we we can't not mention jordan peele yeah and the way he has redefined horror and he kind of brought back this idea of, again, the sphere of the other. But again, Get Out is in a weird way, almost, um, I don't want to say it's the way they auction him off because they want to take his eyes, which is his most predominant feature since he's a photographer and he sees it through a lens. It's almost kind of like, it kind of reminds me of a somewhat of a body horror movie without the body horror. Well, yeah, absolutely. The, the main, let's say, physical threat falls very comfortably under the body horror category. You're going to literally steal his body. Exactly. And then and possess it. And there's this idea of, of course, um, being exploited, like, for example, racially, uh, how you're just being exploited uh, what's needed, and then you're going to be thrown to the wayside. So he's only being accepted until his use is done, and he's thrown away. It's just another point on exploitation. This is not an original thought. This has been discussed in kind of critical pieces on the movie. But just to mention it here because it's relevant... The people doing the exploiting are 
the kind of stereotypical centrists, centrists, Liberals. liberal-leaning centrists. So it's not what you would expect going in blind about a movie of race exploitation, right? That the victimizers are using a veneer of progressivism to mm-hmm. ultimately kind of exploit and commit the crimes. It's just interesting because that's another thing. Uh, that's another development in recent times. It, I think part of why the movie is as cutting edge or as kind of revolutionary as it was in the genre is that it was one of the first to really tackle that. I, I mean, in any, in any genre, I can't name you another example that delves into the false facade of progressivism. That's true. I can't think of one too either. The thing about these horror movies today, again, it's the way it tackles horror is different. No more straight... Well, there are their fair shares of jump scares. I mean, things have come back, such as, for example, the idea of demon possessions and all that, which was started with Exorcist, has come back in Blumhouse films, like Conjuring. I want to throw in another... Okay, so Blumhouse, Conjuring, all of that's a whole universe that we can exactly. talk about. But what I was actually going to bring up, because it's, it's under the um, kind of supernatural umbrella as well, but also very much an example of this shift concept. conscious horror concept, Mike Flanagan. Mm-hmm. Everything he has done uh, explores the family unit. The family unit, um, in some way, uh, beginning with Oculus, which you guys introduced me to, and I thank you for that because honestly, guys, Oculus is a terrific movie, deeply unsettling, minimal jump scares, and at its core, again, it's not a, it's not a question of the other or a danger that society's fear but more of a coming it comes to term with grief of family loss family right? loss the, the breakdown of a family not the family unit unit not the nuclear family in an ideological sense but it's about domestic violence it's about about losing your loved ones it's about yeah just the collapse of the family in a way that i hadn't seen before and all his subsequent work has touched on that also even the haunting of hell house yes which is for you guys who don't know his Netflix series that I haven't finished yet, but uh, <laughs> from what, but I, we need to finish. <laughs> we really need to finish. Yeah, but again, that also brings the grief of family dealing with loss, the trauma of loss. Um, so you can see perspective. Uh, sorry to interrupt you there, but the, what he does also is play on whether the whether the horrors that you are seeing on screen are Yours? more literal or through the prism of traumatized memories. Yes, yes, he does that. And that's one thing I liked about Oculus is the idea of wrestling with, is it supernatural? There's the other person saying, well, no, it could have been this, you know? Oh, the dog got killed by the mirror. No, it was the fact that the dog got sick and we couldn't inter- We couldn't deal with the grief of it. Again, grief is another thing. That and that's another thing that's changed in the last 10 years is the stigma around mental health and trauma and seeking help. Exactly. So this touches on that too. But... One thing we we could see is that these, of course, horror movies are always recycled. I mean, it's something too, but we have a new form of recycling where we're taking tropes from the 80s and 70s, but now we're giving it a more, I don't want to say a realistic spin, but more of a conscious spin, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? So there's this idea of that these movies have a, they're a bit self-aware of what they're doing. Yeah, uh, but not in a satirical way. Parody, parody but, kind of. Yeah, but they're taking the tropes and they're embracing the tropes and they're saying, "Listen, these tropes scared us. This is an homage to these tropes." Um, of course, the themes will always be the same. Like for example, we just talked about grief. We talked about the new collapse of a fam, the nuclear family. Of course, it's not nuclear anymore. We talked about, of course, horror movies. Like for example, the new Candyman movie covered gentrification mm. of black neighborhoods. So you can see there's 21st century issues to old school horror tropes. Of course, religious hysteria as seen in The Witch. 
And another thing about these movies is that the focus is more on ambient. It's not what you see, but it's what could be out there. You know what I mean? The show don't tell isn't it in revert? No, neither. <laughs> that exactly. doesn't apply. It's more like uh, an something, insinuation. There's yeah. something lurking. Yeah. And it's mostly off screen. Like for example, like what's what's was unsettling about Midsommar? The, just no, the there's, whole a, there's a lot of show but, in that movie too. <laughs> but there was the fact like when you first get there, there's something up with the atmosphere. True. Actually, th- now that I think about it, a lot of the the great movies in the genre that came out in the last 10 years are very visceral and gory. It's not that they don't show, it's that in equal measure they build the atmosphere and the dread through off-screen elements or implied elements while not shying away from extreme violence at times. So it's like kind of a weird embracing of the old and recontextualizing it in the new. It, it's I think I never this thought is, of it before. I think this is perfectly exemplified and I don't and I I think uh, I'll be amiss if I don't mention Scott Derrickson and Sinister, which I guess was technically scientifically proven to be the scariest movie of all time. Really? How, how do they... Uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, was it by the by the amount of, like, the pulsate, your heartbeat? Is, I'm trying to remember if I've seen Sinister. Do you, just a quick recap of the, the Ethan Hawke is an author. He moves his family to a house, but they don't know that there's been a oh, murder there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, there was a really silly <laughs> name for the, the demon... I remember it kind of taking me out of the experience. Bagul? Yeah, it was like Bagu, Bugger or something. Bagul. Yeah. And then it's, <laughs> yo, man, but like that. No, I'm not kidding, man. When that happened, because my, my younger brother uh, insisted I watch the movie. And it was overall very, very good. I agree. Shout out to Rashid? To, no, I'm wrong. Oh, okay. No, uh, so Rashid, no shout out. Rashid, no shout out. <laughs> no, but I remember he's on Skype or something with a professor of the arcade or something. And um, then he's like, it's the bugaboo. And it's, it's like, it's, oh my God. First of all, he was on <laughs> Skype with uh, Kingpin. Okay, so Was it Kingpin? Was yeah. It, uh, what's his name? Uh, <laughs> no way. I didn't notice. <laughs> okay. So, oh shit. <laughs> in Marvel Cinematic Universe. Also guys, how good is Daredevil? Yeah. Most underrated superhero. Anyway, back to the, back uh, to the theme. But, but see, but those, but again, that acts on demon possession, right? So you get the idea of, like we saw with Exorcist with Pazuzu, you get with Bagul, and then you get again with the... Babadook. Awfully, no, no. What's that shit called in uh, Conjuring? Valak. When when the girl's like, what's the demon's name? At I least know Valak you. sounds like a demon prince. Yeah, man, but it was so badly done, man. Like the whole movie. See, so The Conjuring 2, I like because I thought it was going to go to the point where you end up questioning, the, are these girls making it up mm. or not? And I'm like, I'll, I would have loved if the movie ended and you're not really sure if it's all made up. But then they turn into like this over-the-top demon. And one thing I hate, man, and I wish they, like, I liked about Exorcist that they, I don't know why they can't just go back. They never show you the demon. You never know how the demon looks like. So it's literally mm. like... Just how it manifests through its vessel. Exactly. But when you come and show me the demon's face, it kind of takes me out of it because they'll never look as scary as director imagined it would be in its head. There's a movie about demon possession that came out, I think, last year. And I didn't see it. Uh, it was not reviewed particularly favorably, but it looks conceptually and visually very interesting. It's about a woman who I think her mother is in a coma and they're doing some sort of radical treatment where they go into her mind. Sort of like the Matrix meets the Exorcist and a demon possesses her mother while her daughter Insidious? is in her brain. Is no, it? it's like she she's rendered in a virtual reality interpretation of her mother's consciousness and there's a demon that's taken hold of her. I can't remember the name of the movie, but it just the whole thing looks different. But anyway, yeah. Anyway, so I think um, 
so that's where we stand with horror today. Just a, a, a last thing there, because this is like the, the latest craze in horror that Smile. I'm aware of. Smile. I haven't seen it. I know you guys have. I loved it. But from what I understand, it's a movie that in many ways is not a conscious horror film particularly, and is more just doubling down on, yeah, the, the, the tropes, but doing it in a way that's legitimately scary. See, the thing is, I'm not, I'm not going to spoil it, so I won't say, but again, I've had a problem with the third act of this movie, but up to that point, it was actually genuinely scary. I thought, first of all, the marketing for this movie was fucking fantastic. It's like almost guerrilla marketing, where mm. they'll just put like random girls in random places with smiles on their faces. <laughs> and it was like, I love it. I love guerrilla marketing. I think it's fantastic. But yeah, but again, that was kind of like straight to the point horror with like shock scare, shock scare. Again, it goes back to not to be a philosopher like go too philosophical but it goes to the idea of um say with me uh lacan's uh, theory of uh the mirror object right like the idea that you look into a mirror once you look into the mirror twice nothing's there so you're expecting the third time to see your face but you end up seeing someone else's face mm. that's a jump scare you know what i mean mm. um so this movie plays on that trope so much so much mm. like it will show you a scene it will show you two again so you're in demand like okay third time no there's a the uh, whatever girl smiling you know it's old school it's hitchcock does it you know what i mean yeah. um it's every every single movie is just a hitchcock movie you know in a weird way <laughs> every horror movie is just hitchcock be redone but yeah but uh i think horror is a is the best vessel to talk about societal issues i can't think of another genre that could cover societal issues or like at least would exemplify zeitgeist or at least a societal anxiety i think you're right because ultimately since this is the genre that predominantly deals with fear and fear is the most or one of the most primal of emotions it's going to tap into the widest cross-section of people which in turn has its finger on the pulse of what people are feeling what the climate is in the world so what we are all collectively fearing will affect the genre on a, on a in a profound way exactly. it's a direct line between the collective consciousness and and the screen exactly and that's one thing why i think horror is maybe a universally loved genre mm. i think everyone out there has a horror movie they at least love relate to they could watch over and over again my parents your parents our great-grandparents everyone mm. has a horror movie they love um even if they'll reluctantly admit it exactly like i don't think i think of my parents i could say my mom loves horror movies and i think we bonded over when like with cinema is that she would expose me to a lot of horror movies growing up expose me to great horror movies that i could not um and she would recommend some like shining i watched it through her pet cemetery i watched it through her it's universal it speaks no matter where you are in the globe we all share the same anxieties we're all afraid of the idea of the family disintegration that the fear of moral collapse the idea of capitalism losing identity in the face of capitalism not even not even just capitalism if you kind of distill it deeper it's just the fear of loss of resources and access to food and shelter and status exactly. status is a and, big one and of course it comes down to religious hysteria i mean who hasn't dealt with it some sort of religious hysteria around them these are these are universal things that we all deal with you True. know what i mean even if most of these movies are americans we all felt the downsides of war we've all lost someone to a disease we've all had social anxieties about biological warfare or nuclear collapse True. or a dystopian society where you're all nameless and faceless and there's an an outer being that's coming to, the, the fear of foreign invasion is always predominantly on our heads and i think that's why horror will forever remain i don't think to go out of vogue 
I can't never. sit. Yeah, never. If it's I, one of the most profitable genres, man. Exactly. You can make it on a dime and reap millions from it, like Blair Witch, Vessel. Um, I think this is where we should cap off. Yeah, we've we've been at it for a while, and yeah. I think we did a really decent job covering A to Z as best we can. And hopefully, you guys got some some good recommendations in there. Everything we've mentioned, I think, is worth seeing, even if it's not the best. Exactly. Just so you could know the history of it, I, like at least like see. I'm not a fan most. Like I've seen most of these movies, but these are just because like, oh, okay, this movie did this. I'd like to see like the start of something. You know, I mean, even these silent movies where they kind of feel dated now. Mm. But you just watch it for the sake of just saying, oh, so this is the origins of horror. Yeah. You know, and just to see what tropes you find then, and you're like, oh, okay, I see this in this movie. I see that in that movie. You know, maybe it's, maybe to cap off, Karim, do you want to recommend each three movies in the genre that we recommend? Okay, that's fair enough. Do you want to go first? Uh, sure. Definitely Annihilation. Very dear to my heart. Both horror and sci-fi. It's, t- it's tougher than <laughs> than you think when you're having to distill it down to to three. The Witch, absolutely, and Oculus. Oculus. Aim. Do you want to recommend three movies? <laughs> Aim recommends Videodrome, especially the <laughs> second part. And then you watch Videodrome again and just focus more on the second part. And then watch Videodrome the third time to analyze the part. I'd give for my top three recommendations for horror, and this is going to be like. In a way that's, oh, this is an essential viewing to understand horror. Of course, The Shining, mm, number one. Mm. I would recommend also, I, I want to say the first Halloween if you haven't seen it. I think... Um, I, I see the argument Yeah, for that I too. think it's a game changer. And also, to go a bit more new, uh, to pick on a new movie. Honestly, man, I think um, Del Toro's uh, Devil's Backbone. Have you ever seen that? No, I haven't. I, I'm a pretty decent fan of... Of Delta, I haven't seen all of his movies, and that's one of them that I miss. But isn't it one of his kind of foundational pieces, like that kind of got his career? Exactly. Started? There's that, and actually, and honestly, like I, th- I was talking to this about Aim, um, Crimson Peak was another. Oh, Crimson Peak is, uh, see, I think, a little underrated. It's it's not it's not scary, but this dude knows his homages and like we were talking about yeah. this the other day and like this is literally an homage to gothic horror so if you really want to watch a proper gothic horror movie just like a, mm. I think that's the one to go I love the aesthetic of it so I'd recommend these three and um, yeah I think that's all for tonight guys thank you for having me for the first time and definitely not the last yeah yeah we best. have a lot of different <laughs> ideas to go through that we've mentioned and should tackle uh, hopefully, with Eamon yeah once he gets his equilibrium in balance once he finds himself <laughs> yeah he's in the spiritual retreat Faso, do you want to give a shout out to your plugins before we sign off uh, sure I'm, I'm most active on Instagram uh, Faisal underscore Benzanger F-A-I-S-A-L underscore <laughs> B-I-N-Z-A-G-R yeah give Any, me a follow um, and is there anything else you want to plug like any works you have in the uh, I, I got a lot of stuff cooking in the pipeline stay tuned nothing to share as of now but uh hopefully very soon all right guys and that was Faisal and to give our call to action uh you can follow us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts uh, apple spotify uh, amazon deezer not stitcher as always and also you can follow us on instagram at convo underscore btwe twitter same handle and facebook at a conversation before the world ends and let us know what you thought of festival should you bring him in for a future episode uh we do have something cooking up um like i said november is going to be an interesting month and hopefully we could get things rolling and until then i guess enjoy halloween take care guys take care